Over recent weeks, we've been looking at this topic, the good, the bad, and the unlikely, as we journey through the book of Judges. And if you've been with us, you'll know that we've been following uh, this particular cycle. Uh, Step one, where the Israelites mess up, and then the enemies oppress them. But step three, they cry out to God, and God raises up a judge, and the land has peace and rest at step five. But then the cycle starts all over again. Now, last week, we arrived at chapter 6 of the book of Judges, and we looked at the first half of our study in the life of this man, Gideon. We took some time to consider four questions about uh, Gideon's questions relating to God's promises. Number one, does God really care about us? Does God know what he's doing? Will God take care of me? And does God keep his promises? And I want us to keep those questions in mind as we move from chapter 6 into chapter 7 and 8. And this evening we are going to move into 7 and 8. And if you've got your pew Bible there, it's on page 249. Now, if chapter 6 was mostly about Gideon's fear, this week we see that in chapter 7... We're dealing with Gideon's faith. And I want to look at Gideon's faith under three headings. First of all, God tests Gideon's faith. And then God encourages Gideon's faith. And then finally, God rewards Gideon's faith. That's what the headings, I hope, will be as we move through in chapter 7. But let's start with God testing Gideon's faith. And let's read some verses together from chapter 7. We'll take time just to read the first eight verses. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. And during that night, the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. Notice, first of all, in verses 1 to 3, that Gideon 
by telling those who were afraid to go home was in fact obeying the law of Moses originally given to his ancestors. And one of the interesting things about uh, reading through the book of Judges is how many times these people forgot what God had already taught them. They had not handed it on one generation to the next. Now if you compare the verses we have just read with these verses, you'll read this. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. When you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. The officer shall say to the army, Has anyone built a new house and not dedicated it? Let him go home or he may die in battle and someone else may dedicate it. Has anyone planted a vineyard and not begun to enjoy it? Let him go home, or he may die in battle and someone else enjoy it. Has anyone become pledged to a woman and not married her? Let him go home, or he may die in battle. He may die one way or the other, uh, if he follows that. Or he may die in battle and someone else marry her. Then the officer shall add, Is any man afraid or faint-hearted? Let him go home so that his brothers will not become disheartened too. So Gideon, in effect, in these verses of Judges, follows what Moses has taught, and he sends 22,000 men packing back to where they came from. And he sifts out 10,000 to stay. But have a look at verses 4 to 6, and notice something very important here. Who's doing the sifting? And I have to say that this struck me because as I was growing up as a lad, I always thought Gideon did the sifting. But listen, God is doing the sifting, not Gideon. And many and varied are the interpretations as to how and why the sifting was done. And I'm not going to speculate where the scriptures don't give an explanation. The important thing for all of us to understand is that God knew what he was doing and why he was doing it. The important thing for me to understand is that God did the sifting. And if you read verses like 1 Samuel 14 and verse 6, you'll be reminded again that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. That's a verse that comes up again when you read on in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel. And the important thing here is to see in verse 7 another promise that God gives to Gideon. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other men go each to his own place. So we see in effect that God brings Gideon to that place where he begins to test his faith. But notice also that God encourages Gideon's faith as we read on in verses 7 to 15. Now remember this as we go into these verses. Victory was promised to Gideon three times. If you look back in chapter 6 and at verse 14, and you'll probably, if you were here last week, remember this. God said to Gideon, Go in the strength you have and save Israel. In verse 16 of chapter 6, he says, I will be with you and you will kill them as one man. And here in chapter 7, verse 7, 
With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Three promises given. But notice too that three signs were given. First of all, in chapter 6, 19 to 21, do you remember there was fire from the rock? In verses 36 to 38, there was the wet fleece. And in 39, 40 of chapter 6, the dry fleece. And another sign here again is given, another promise. In chapter 7, verse 9, it says, Get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. Another promise there. And as if that isn't encouragement enough, God gives Gideon yet another sign. Have a look at verses 10 to 14. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could, be no, could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend of his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And you know, as you read those verses and you think of the life of Gideon, isn't it so encouraging that God understands us when we have doubts, and fears and isn't it so encouraging that he doesn't dismiss us as useless and hopeless God not only tests Gideon's faith but God comes to encourage Gideon's faith but notice also when we move on in this chapter at verses 15 to 25 God rewards Gideon's faith God rewards Gideon's faith or if you like the lack of it But that shouldn't surprise us. Do you remember these words from that great chapter about faith in Hebrews? At Hebrews 11 verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So even those of us who at times display a weakness in our faith can be assured that God does reward faith when it's exercised. So how did God reward Gideon? Well, have a look at 15b. First of all, God gave him wisdom. When Gideon came back from hearing about the dream, he was something of a new man. Some of that dread and fear had subsided, and into action he goes to prepare his men for battle. And verse 15 shows that he at last has taken on board what God had said, that he would in fact deliver these Midianites into his hands. So with that assurance, he sets his battle plan into action with very wise strategy. Then in verses 17 to 22, he not only gave him wisdom, but he gave him courage. He says, watch me. Follow my lead. Do exactly what I do. 
Wow. What a different Gideon. Where was the Gideon we met in chapter 6? Here in chapter 7, here's a man who's got courage. What a change. And you, Gideon, the Lord gives him courage he didn't think that he possessed. So not only did God give him wisdom, but he gave him courage. But have a look at verses 23 to 25. Because here we find that God gives him the extra help that he needs. It's fairly obvious that 300 men couldn't chase such a mighty number of enemies. So Gideon calls out for extra troops. And in verses 23 to 25, it tells us Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were called out. And they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they took the waters, they took the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. What a very different chapter 7 is compared to chapter 6, where we see faith in action. Gideon moves from being the man of fear to the man of faith. And now we come to chapter 8. And in chapter 8 of Judges, we want to think about Gideon's folly. Chapter 6 was Gideon's fear. Chapter 7 was Gideon's faith. And in Judges 8, I want to suggest we see Gideon's folly. Why? Well, let's have a look together at chapter 8. Let's begin by reading the first three verses. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you, went to fight, when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. But he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared with you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Now you'd think when you win and when you gain what can only be described as an amazing victory that things would be great. Not only would you be a winner, you'd be appreciated, you'd be valued. But how often is it a very different story when so often no matter how good you are, no matter how much good you do, you discover you have critics. And there always seems to be somebody to kick you down when you're up. And then when you're down, they kick you even harder. And this is what was happening to Gideon. Here in verses 1 to 3, we find the Ephraimites having a go at Gideon. Now you need to remember that this particular tribe was a very proud group of people. In fact, they were, in terms of strength and number, only second to the tribe of Judah. And in the context of what had just taken place in chapter 6 and 7, it's more than unlikely that such a tribe would have wanted to be associated with a seemingly weak group of 300 men 
going into battle. And going into battle against such a huge number of enemies, but also going into battle with such a feeble arsenal of weapons, that wouldn't have suited the Ephraimites. They were too proud for that. That wouldn't have been their way of doing things. But they weren't too proud to expect to cash in on some of the spoils of the battle. And maybe that's what's irritating them here in in verse 1 of chapter 8. So how would Gideon answer? After all, he was a victorious general. He was a national hero. And as we'll see shortly, very much in line to be chosen as the people's king. But notice that he didn't allow his popularity, popularity to run away with his wisdom. And it's a great example of Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1. We're reminded, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And Gideon proves that not only can he be in control of a great army, he can also control his temper and his tongue. In fact, in his wisdom, he pays the men of Ephraim a compliment. He told them that in his opinion, their capturing of Oreb and Zeb at the end of chapter 7, where we read that, was a greater victory than what Gideon and his men had accomplished. And at the end of verse 3, we find recorded for us how Gideon had really taken the fuse out of a potentially explosive situation. And then from verses 4 to 17, and I'm not going to take time to read the whole account, it's a, it's a long chapter, but do keep your Bible open because we find Gideon and his small band of 300 heroes tired and hungry. And tired and hungry, they find themselves pursuing two of the Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, knowing full well that if they captured these two kings then the enemy's power would be absolutely crippled. These two kings were key in the battle. And if they captured them and dealt with them, then things were going to be so much different. And as he reached the River Jordan, Gideon asked for bread to be given to his weary army. The men of Succoth refused his request. And if you read carefully, you'll probably find that they were very skeptical of Gideon's army's ability to capture the two kings. Remember, 300 of them were fighting. They were tired. They were weary. They were hungry. And they were probably fearful that if Gideon did succeed, then the Midianites would come and take revenge on them. And vengeance would have been their portion if they helped Gideon's men gain strength for their battle. If you read verse 6, you'll get something of the flavor of their reluctance to help. And if you read on in verse 8, you'll see that Gideon got exactly the same reception from the men of Peniel. And you've only got to look at verses 7 and 9 to see how incensed Gideon is by their refusal. Verse 7, Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. Verse 9, So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. He warned both cities that he would be back to punish them for their unwillingness to feed his troops. And from verses 10 to 12, you'll see that God gave Gideon's men victory over the Midianites. 
That is those who fled from the scene we looked at in chapter 7. They chased after them. And God gave Gideon complete victory over these Midianites. And Gideon did in fact capture the two enemy kings. And in triumph he retraced his steps. And here in Judges we again find some very unsavory reading. The punishment dished out to the men of Succoth is in the eyes of some commentators described as Gideon's first of all, Gideon's first of all uh, displaying the captured kings to these people. He brought them back and he displayed them openly that he had actually captured them. And then he made them lie down naked on the ground and covering them over with thorny branches and then driving a threshing sledge over them until they died. Now, I know that to us must sound an incredibly brutal thing for Gideon to do. And then on top of that, to kill the rebels in Peniel who had treated Gideon in the same way. But we do need to remember the words of Scripture in the book of Judges, where repeatedly it says that every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. But I wonder why did Gideon show the people of Succoth and Peniel the same kindness and grace he showed to the Ephraimites, and simply forgive them too. Why didn't he do that? He was willing to show the Ephraimites grace. But he doesn't seem to find the same kind of grace for Succoth and Peniel. And I have to say that was a question that really puzzled me when I looked at it. And here's what Warren Wearsby suggests as the reason in his little commentary. For one thing, their offences were not alike. The pride of Ephraim was nothing compared to the rebellion of Succoth and Peniel. Ephraim was protecting their tribal pride, a sin, but not a costly one. But Succoth and Peniel were rebelling against God's chosen leader and assisting the enemy at the same time. Theirs was the sin of hardness of heart towards their brethren and treason against the God of heaven. Of what good was it for Gideon and his men to risk their lives to deliver Israel if they had traitors right in their own nation? Leaders must have discernment or they will make wrong decisions as they deal with different situations. Personal personal insults are one thing, but rebellion against the Lord and his people is quite something else. An interesting an interesting reason that Wearsby gives, but I'll, I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions, card that I am. But it's an interesting one. And what follows on in the closing verses makes extremely sad reading, and hence my heading for chapter 8 as being Gideon's folly. Gideon was a true hero. His enemies were defeated, first the army, then the king's. Then it was payback time as he dealt with Succoth and Peniel. And at verse 22, the Israelites invite Gideon to, quotes, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson. In other words, Gideon, set up a hereditary family dynasty for us because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. And there was the fundamental mistake that they made. Gideon had not saved them out of the hand of Midian. God had. But the glory was going to Gideon. Listen, the battle belonged to God, not to Gideon. But notice in verse 23 that Gideon actually realized that. 
He said, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. However, and this is really where Gideon's folly kicks in. Despite refusing a kingship, Gideon requests gold from them and begins to live like a king. He didn't want to accept the kingship, but he quite fancied the way of life. And he begins to live like a king. And worse than that, the man of faith who led the people into battle now leads the same people into idolatry. For at this point, Gideon made an ephod, and the people, in verse 27 it says, prostituted themselves by worshipping it. In other words, they stopped giving their devotion to the rightful person, God, and used the ephod as an idol. An idol that became a snare to Gideon and to his entire family. So much more needs to be said, but I'm conscious that we really don't have time to do justice to two full chapters uh, in one evening. But do think back to last week. When we noticed that Gideon tore down his father's idols, But remember, there were many thousands in Israel who were still devoted to Baal. Those idols also needed to be destroyed. And the incredible victory over Midian gave Gideon good reason to call these people back to God and to obedience to his law. But instead of using the victory for God's glory, he used it for his own profit. And the nation eventually lapsed back into sin again. And the cycle as we've seen right throughout the book of Judges, started all over again. With all the wealth and reputation he had amassed, no doubt Gideon thought that his children and their children were well provided for. But sadly, the opposite was the case, as you'll discover next week as we move into the next chapter. What was it that caused Gideon's decline? I suggest to you that more than anything else, it was pride. When we first met Gideon, he was a man full of fear. Probably the most unlikely of all the good, the bad, and the unlikely that we'll come across in the book of Judges. Before the battle with Midian, he knew he had to depend on God. During the chasing of the enemy, however, he became authoritative and even vindictive. When he was offered the kingship, and on reflection I sense he was being pious when he said, the Lord will rule over you. Somehow I suspect he had a a hidden personal agenda. I see no reference to Gideon calling the people to make a new covenant with God. I see no reference to Gideon calling them to obey God. What I tend to see is someone who started as a servant becoming a celebrity. And the church around the world is littered with so many personalities. One of my great memories of going to the SAM headquarters in America was that we were doing something on accountability and leadership. And one afternoon we were being taken out in a coach. We weren't told where we were going. We were just told, bring your coats, bring your cameras. We're going somewhere. And when we got there, we found a mini Disney. That's all I could describe it as. A mini Disney with all kinds of elaborate buildings, uh, a huge play area, a vast area for caravans and caravanettes, and I suddenly realized that we were in the middle of one of the televangelists 
uh, I'm going to use the word idol. I had amassed so much popularity and profit, but it was sitting there vacant. Vacant. And it was a great reminder to me of what happens when leaders are not accountable. And because leaders were not accountable in that situation, just the whole thing became an idol and and an absolute travesty to the things of God. How different we see here Gideon from the studies we did in Abraham. Do you remember as we looked in the life of Abraham that in his battles against the kings, he refused to take anything for himself, but rather desired that any glory from the battle would go to God alone. Gideon was a man of fear. Gideon was a man who learned what it was to trust in God. But sadly, we read of Gideon's folly coming towards the end of his life. And I ask the question, as we look back over two weeks of Gideon's life, so what? So what can we learn from the life of Gideon? And just very quickly, because my time has gone, I want us for a minute or two to go right back to the beginning of chapter, chapter 6, where we find Gideon fearful and questioning God. Why God? Why me? Why not somebody else? Can I say tonight that it's okay to question God? You'll not be the first and you'll not be the last if you've got that why question. As we saw people like Moses, people like Jeremiah, and many others. And I wonder, is that where you are just now? You have more questions than answers. Fearful like Gideon, but no answers. But Gideon also reminds us of the duty we have to teach our children. Over and over again in the book of Judges, you find that these, these people forgot to learn what their forefathers had learned, and God had to keep bringing them back. They had forgotten the command to pass on God's truth from generation to generation. What a privilege we have of teaching our children and of teaching our children's children. Some of us are grandparents. And what a privilege it is to teach those grandchildren in the things of God. Yes, God's ways often don't seem easy to understand, and they didn't to Gideon. But God knew exactly what he was doing and was always there for Gideon to help strengthen his faith. And our faith, just like Gideon's, needs strengthening. Gideon felt weak but had to learn that, unlikely as he was for the task given to him, God does choose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God can and does use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God does use small numbers and do great things through those small numbers. But I think one of the great challenges for me is to be careful because pride does come before a fall. I wonder, do you often feel like I do? I can identify all too easily with, the Gideon, a lot, with Gideon a lot of the time. I struggle to feel adequate for some of the things God puts into my path. I even try to avoid some of them. 
And yet God reminds me of the story in Mark 9 where a father brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus to be healed right after Jesus gives a speech about how he's tried and tired by this unbelieving generation. And the father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, help us. And I picture him saying that in a kind of resigned, pathetic way, as if Jesus is maybe their last hope, but nothing else has worked. So who knows if this will work or not. And Jesus says something like this. What? If I can? Of course I can. Why would you even think I couldn't? And even at that, the father responds with the line, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus hears this half-hearted prayer of faith mixed with unbelief, and he heals the boy in a most remarkable and miraculous way. So maybe like me, you need to pray this prayer, a prayer Jesus seems pretty willing to answer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief.